0: morning good morning my name is andrea Simintov, and you're listening to pull up a chair on israel news talk radio okay we are here we are together we are having a wonderful morning <laughs> okay i'm just looking here <laughs> i was forgive me i mean serious things going on this is serious show but uh, i was laughing because um, I just was taking it very slow this morning thinking we have all the time in the world all the time and suddenly it's 60 seconds we're going to be on the air I'm just trying to make sure that all of the special buttons that they have in this studio are all lying so if we hear beeping and craziness you'll let me know all right so first of all let's let me just tell you that the skies are clear this morning in Eretz Israel I think about it as oh Let it be an omen. Let it be an omen to inner clarity, outer clarity, spiritual clarity. Um, We all know what we're praying for. We all know what our tefillot include. I think that well, I think that we, our prayers have changed. Even if we've only changed our prayers once, or remember to be less self-centered in our tefillot, in our beseechment of heaven. We're shifting, we're changing, and that is because we are made of flesh and blood and created in God's image. Not that God has a gel manicure, or that God has a long flowing beard. But we are created in God's image of all that we can be. And when we practice the art of pausing, pausing before we speak, pausing before we interact, pausing before we dress, pausing before we pray. My goodness the lessons that we are receiving from heaven in every corner of this world, regardless of which corner we live in. Sometimes the weight and the clarity is more than I believe that I can even handle. All right, so let's first say, Bokeh good night, good night, it's late at night. Well, on the West Coast, it's only nine o'clock, but on the East Coast, it's midnight in the US. Very happy to have you joining us live. The UK is with us this morning, chilly morning in the UK. Good morning, Canada. Switzerland has joined us. Ethiopia today. Very nice. Our brothers and sisters in Ethiopia, hopefully, are listening in. Israel. Jamaica has joined us again. For some reason, the monitor, the board, says that Europe is with us. All of Europe, every corner of Europe is with us today, including Spain and including Australia. Hopefully, South Africa will join us soon, and we can get this show on the road or this road on the show. Okay. Um, we always try to keep it upbeat. We have a lot of upbeat things to share. And yet, despite that, we can't ignore the reality of these mad, twisted, hafuch al hafuch, inverted you know, on inverted, backwards and backwards days. You know, it's no longer enough to say the emperor is naked and why is no one getting it? Um, you know, that train left the station remember they used to say Big Brother is you know Big Brother is listening in <laughs> Big Brother has moved in. Um, this morning I want to share just something a little bit a little bit personal, not too personal not too intimate. I thought I had anything so personal or intimate actually going on but um, a couple of eye-opening things that I love sharing with you because I like when you write to me at Andrea at israelnewstalkradio.com and you tell me, about these little pings in your life that absolutely are life altering. And I had three of those little pings this week. One um, one was, there's a neighbor. We have a neighbor here in the building and um, she fights with everybody. Everybody fights very, you know, there's a lot of, we would say easily, so self-righteous, it's, couple of women in an apartment and always fighting, always fighting, very, very aggressive. And I thinking that I was better than everybody. I said, well, I never fight with her. Well, guess what? (laughs) We've had our altercation and it's uncomfortable. There are people that are comfortable in this, in the arena of rage. They're always angry. They're always And they say, well, what do I care? I don't talk to him. And it's like a big, we say it's a big mile. It's like a badge of pride. I don't talk to him. But I grew up in a world where like, if you don't talk to somebody, that's not a badge of pride. It means that something is discordant. Something is off. And when you run into a neighbor in the parking lot, in the elevator, I know that this is familiar to somebody listening in, in the corner grocery, the bodega, and you are at odds with them it's awkward and my goodness the world is awkward enough and it was funny i ran into this neighbor we sort of like kind of crashed into each other at the mailboxes and for a moment i remembered that we're not speaking and then i thought to myself what's the worst that can happen she'll turn away she'll walk away have I never been hurt before? Never been embarrassed before? Never been uncomfortable before? It's the story of my entire last 40 years. Um, and I said to her, oh, hello, how are you? How's your mom? And it came from a very sincere place. And you could see when one is practicing compassion, practicing awareness, practicing, I saw the gratitude. I was shamed by the immense gratitude on her face to be able to release from her shoulders. And she said to me, oh, all right, how are you? How is your husband? How are your children? We both pretended that there had been no conflict. And that art of letting go of what we can just let go of was so liberating. And you know what? I'm proud to tell you, I can't remember what the disagreement is about, and I'm sure that she doesn't remember what the disagreement is about. And it's much nicer to see someone and say, hi, how are you doing? And wait for the answer. Then showing them, putting back your shoulders, and I'll show her, it was liberating. It was a liberating moment this week. And I had another liberating moment. Again, I don't come out as a rock star in these, um, in these little vignettes. Because my ordinariness is frequently what's challenged. A woman called me today, uh, this week, She had an appointment for a service that I offer and the appointment has been standing for two weeks. And then suddenly she wrote and she said, I'm a single mom. Can you offer me a discount? I must tell you the natural, the kick in kicked up my umbrage kicked in. And I thought, well, I work very hard for my money. What is she asking me about the quality of my life? Do I need, can I afford my prices even high enough? And at first I was upset You have the appointment. It's not such a big deal. My prices are fair. And then I took a moment, the same amount of time that it takes to boil the water for a cup of coffee, the same amount of time that it takes to put on one's shoes, the same amount of time that it takes to tidy up the coffee table. And I remembered being that single mother, begging for a discount, asking for something in exchange for something else. There's something about remembering, remembering our own uncomfortable times and bringing that to the present. And suddenly I saw it as an opportunity to say thank you for all of the courtesies that were extended to me. So here we have two examples this week of an ordinary woman, that's me, I raise my hand, being offered these holy opportunities, holy insights. The difference between my experiences this week and somebody who didn't have these experiences is merely that I took the time to see them, to recognize them. And you know what my prayers are? That I always, always, let's say nine times out of 10, seven times out of 10, I don't miss that knock on the head that I wait for it that we say together, what do you want from me now, God? What am I supposed to learn? What's the learning opportunity here? Imagine that being front and center. I'm so grateful as I'm getting into Shabbos this week, having had those two incredible, incredible experiences. Remember the the phrase humble pie? Well, I certainly ate a slice of humble pie. I don't know. It doesn't sound very Jewish. I don't think it's kosher. But, it's just something about grabbing humility whenever we're given, we're such an arrogant, we have to be the winner, we have to be the best. We have to be the succeeders. We have to stand on the shoulders and crush someone else in order to reach these heights. My gosh, it's so freeing to be able to say, what am I supposed to learn here? When, you, when that umbrage kicks in, there's a lesson coming. Don't sweep it away, okay? I do umbrage a lot. Isn't that a great word? Umbrage, umbrage. All right. Um, I received from several sources this beautiful, beautiful. I guess they call it a meme. It's like a like a cartoon, a thing, but it was very beautiful, and it really is the front and center reality of our lives here in Israel. And it says a kind reminder. You know, if not just a memo to self, but a kind reminder to the world. Starting a war and losing it doesn't make you a victim. Okay. Put that one in your pipe, right? So um, someone sent me, I don't know, I had seen this before, and then it was a beautiful reminder. Someone sent me a, um, a list called the 10 Steps. To Greatness, uh, by Rabbi Avigdor Miller. And um, I know that I myself have read quite a few essays of Rabbi Miller. Um, I must have read a book or two, but can't remember. But I really wanted to share this with you because I know that Ronnie and I have been talking about it, and I think that all of us listening in, let's see, if everybody listening into the show live and listening in on podcast gives at least consideration to a couple of these items. My gosh, we will turn the world on its glorious head. So, number one is to spend thirty seconds a day thinking about the world to come, Olam Haba. Two, to say at least once a day, "I love you, God. I love you, Hashem." Three, once a day, do an act of kindness that no one knows about. That's huge. (laughs) Excuse me. Number four, say something to encourage someone. Five, at one meal, if possible, say or at least think that you are eating l'shem shemayim, to have a greater awareness of God. The next is to be aware of the principle that man was created in the image of God. That's huge. We already mentioned it today on the show. We'll talk more about it. Once a day, give someone a smile. Spend 30 seconds each day in gratitude for the fact that you have clothing. Spend one minute each day thinking about what happened yesterday. And the last one, spend each day, spend time each day thinking about Jerusalem when the Holy Temple stood. Ten Steps to Greatness. You know what? If you want this, drop me a note, com. write Ten Steps to Greatness, and I will be very happy to send you this list. Okay. Um, I have to apologize. I'm apologize. I'm going to be doing a couple of quotes today. Things came across my desk, things that absolutely paralyzed me, but paralyzed me with pleasure. Paralyzed me. I froze. I froze in gratitude. And in two of these cases, I do not know the people of, you know, who I'm I'm quoting. So I do want to say to people, when you're posting things, when you're sending things to other people that you feel would inspire them, Hashem knows I get a lot of this inspirational Andrea, mention this on the show. Andrea, you have to listen to this. Andrea, do this. Sometimes they do not include the name or the source of the speaker. Um, Frequently, I don't use them because if I can't back it up, but then I realized I have a brilliant group of friends listening in so if you know the names of these people send me the names and i will credit them at a later date saw a lovely video having a sip of coffee one moment please remember it's only after seven in the morning live and um, i know that we have a lot of non-jewish friends listening into the show listening into this station really a lot of non-Jewish friends here at Israel News Talk Radio. So someone sent me this video of a woman, young, beautiful girl, converted to Judaism, as you'll hear later on. She comes from Texas, and um, she tells a story. She converted, and now her non-Jewish father is supporting her husband's learning. Okay, and let me just give you a preface. A kolel. A kolel is a house of learning. It's a rabbinical study. It's a rabbinical studies program. Really great yeshivas have kolels. So you have to know the lingo. So here she says, this lovely woman whose name I don't know, but I know that one of you great listeners will let me know. And she, this is her whole speech. We were in Shana Rishonah the first year here in Israel. I was expecting my first child and my dad came in for the birth. Because he wanted to meet his first grandchild. And we were so broke. We were trying to keep it a secret how broke we were. Because how is my father going to understand that my husband is in Kolel? That he's studying full time. How is he going to get that? So my father came. And my husband is kind of warming up to him. And showing him around the house. And saying, so this is the Talmud. This is what I learn. And we took him to the Mir Yeshiva. I I digress. The Mir is a magnificent, famous Yeshiva in the base Israel section of Jerusalem. And she says, we take him to the Mir Yeshiva where my husband is learning. And we had this whole thing going on with the apartment. We needed to rent a new apartment and we had no money for rent. Right before my dad left, he sat us down on the couch and he's from Texas, and he said, listen, y'all, I can see something is going on here. He's not able to study the way he's, forgive me my, my, my bad Texas accent. I'm sure I'll hear from you Texans. He's not able to study the way he's supposed to be studying those books that he told me that God wants him to study. He's not able to study those books because of an economic issue. So what I figure is that God wants him to study those books and the economics is keeping him from studying the books. So from here on out, I'm going to just pay all's rent every month. And my dad paid our rent every single month so that my husband could sit and learn Torah. My non-Jewish father gets the power of kolel and the power of of Torah learning. What do you think about that story? I have to tell you, it gave me goosebumps. It made me feel great humility. And it made me sad, but determined for Jews. Jews who are possessors of the birthright by virtue of their just having been born halachically Jewish according to Jewish law, who really have had no exposure to this. So there's something very humbling, very charming. And if you know who this is, please send me her name. Okay. Um, interesting article came across this week. Why aren't Arab leaders calling on Hamas to end the war? We've all given this some thoughts. You know, you um, this past week, again, the Palestinian Authority leader Mahmoud Abbas called on Hamas to reach a deal to free the Israeli hostages, spare Gaza the additional death and destruction. And this move, considering it came from Abbas, was clearly, it was really kind of chutzpahdik. It was a very brave move, ironically, on his part, because while Hamas is distressingly popular among Palestinians, um, Abbas is very much not. But the question is, why are the Arab leaders allowing the slaughter to continue? They understand that until Hamas is obliterated, there will never be any peace in this region. They get it. Why did Jordan's King Abdullah, who I have grown less and less impressed with every passing year, um, direct his words at Israel? For um, you know, continuing this war, and not Hamas, when he himself declared that the Gaza war would, end, would end, you know must end, it's staggering. So obviously, there's a reason. I have my own thoughts why these reasons are. I know that as long as the blame is focused on Israel, this is not. You don't have to be a rocket scientist for this. You know, as long as the blame is directed at Israel. It keeps the Palestinians, paren sick, close paren, off of their borders. There's not one Arab nation that has made any effort, any effort, not a teaspoon, to absorb any of these refugees, these Gazan refugees. They're left to squint. What is it? Hold on a second. Just looking here. A little... Oh, a little emergency, <laughs> studio emergency, but we nipped it in the bud, keeping them from their borders. No concern. They're merely tools, tools for Arab propagandists. Let them rot in their own squalor. And while misguided, misguided, isn't that kind of, perverted, twisted, ill-informed, and indeed sick, feel-good woke leftists of the pro-Palestinian ilk continue their rage and their fury and their call for the destruction of the Jewish state, Arab wealth is not squandered by giving aid, offering sukkar to their brothers and sisters who, by their own efforts... Are rotting and dying in Gaza. That's my thought. Okay, um, let's wait. There is one. We want to hold on one second. All right, let's just go along to my notes. Although I'm a little bit out of sort. Oh yeah. Okay, I'm going to actually skip ahead in my notes. Stay with me one second. We want to keep this show real. And um, yeah, so here's another example of, I heard I-24, wonderful station, interesting station, informative station. It's a, um, check it out, the letter I, I think it's a lowercase I, 24. And so they had a representative, I believe it is a government advisor, a uh, a native English speaker, and he spoke about the ad- Obama administration in 2014. And this is, again, a quote. And again, I want to know what you think about it. You know, we're walking into walls here thinking, why are they not getting it? Why are they not understanding? So apparently, history has a very short memory. Politicians have very short memories, especially when it's not convenient. So I wish I knew this guy's name. Somebody will tell me. When President Obama, this is a quote, when President Obama felt that the United States was causing too many civilian casualties in Syria, and this was right after 2014, when Israel had just fought a very serious war with Gaza, President Obama sent the Joint Joint Chiefs of Staff to Israel for what was called the Lessons Learned Program. Got that? I googled it. It's a real thing. To learn from Israel. Just how in the world Israel gets the civilian casualties as low as it does, including in densely populated urban areas where humans are used as human shields. So what we see, I'm still quoting, so what we see time and again is that the United States leaders will sometimes criticize Israel's actions, but when America actually cares about how to protect civilians, they look to Israel to teach them how to do it right. I don't think there's any question there. Um, Yeah, all right. So a professor, who is this professor? Um, Professor um, Mauricio Karchmer. Karchmer. So he was a professor at MIT and he quit. He quit recently over the rampant anti-Semitism, the woke, anti-semitism at mit not easy to get a job at mit not easy to find yourself on its uh, professor professorial roster and yet he walked out because it was another context situation and i am happy to announce this came from this week's uh, new york jewish week uh the jewish uh, telegraphic agency a jewish professor resigned and guess where he's going to be working now boys and girls Yeshiva University. We've had this discussion before. What happens? What is that wonderful Ivy League education? What is it worth if our children are cowering, locked in libraries, putting triple locks on their dorm rooms, removing their yarmulkas, not wearing a Magan David, a Star of David, making certain there's no mezuzah on their door, eating in their dorm room, rather than a kosher section of the dining room, lest they be outed. Indeed, is the goldener Medina still goldener for Yiddin? Hebrew University, uh, Yeshiva University. So apparently he's a computer scientist, and he announced last month that he was quitting, he couldn't keep it up, and he was immediately snapped up by YU. He happened to have gotten, I think, his undergraduate degrees. I'm not sure. watching the clock here. I'm not sure where he got his undergraduate degrees, but I think it was at Hebrew University. He taught at MIT from 1989 to 1995, returned in 2019 after working in finance, and we really wish him the best of luck going where he's celebrated, going where he's needed, and going where he is no longer Afraid. All right, you all know how I feel about South Africa, heartbroken as I see it sinking more and more into moral decay, and yet it's my second home, not because my accent indicates that I uh, am South African, but my husband is South African, many South African relatives by marriage, three of my children lived for many years in South Africa, and one still is there, I have South African grand children. Please, God, I'll be speaking in South Africa um, sometime in the middle of March. But anyway, here is some good news out of South Africa, especially as I will be on one of the last LL flights leaving. And um, oh, my goodness, look at who's joined us. Maharepa, French Polynesia and Santa Cruz do Sol in Brazil. Absolutely love it. I can can you feel the vibe? I'm I'm liking it a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening in, friends, all of you. Um I think it's on this this coming Sunday. Is this Sunday the 25th? So anyway, apparently South African Christians are not going to be bullied by a bullying government. South African Christians, deeply God-centered Christians are holding a nationwide prayer for Israel. And this was um, many of the Christian communities, a quote, are deeply unhappy about the allegations being leveled by our government on Israel. Explained, this is interesting, explained Philip Rosenthal, director of Christian View Network. I have some research to do there. But anyway, according to this article, that I have no idea where I got it from, Hundreds of South African Christians are expected to gather in significant towns nationwide next Sunday to offer prayers for both South Africa and Israel, certainly two countries that deeply need our prayers. They intend to show solidarity with the Jewish state and to disassociate themselves from what they perceive as South Africa's unfounded accusation of genocide against Israel. I think we have... Completed that. If you ever want to know, I know that I have a friend in California, my friend Todd, will frequently challenge me. He holds my feet to the fire, and I'm so grateful. He often asks me to send me the articles, send me the links to the articles I quote, and I'm happy to do it. Andrea at com. Happy to send it to you. Um, So that's good news out of South Africa. Very good news. Um somebody said this week I, I just loved it. Simplicity, simplicity. And it just said the United Nations is on the wrong side of everything. My goodness, how simple. There's no reason to parse it. There's no reason to point a finger. That, yeah, but you know, they really I look back as a little girl trick or treating in my secular childhood on the streets of Queens, New York, carrying my little UNICEF box and raising, there was something so noble about it, raising money for children, to think what a stinking cesspool the United Nations is. It's not enough that we had to, that they had to point out, not arrest, not in prison merely supposedly take away the jobs of 13 UNRWA workers who were known to be actively participating with the Arab butchers who slayed precious Jews on the morning of October 7th. No further sanctioning. But here, just this past week, we actually have a video. Go to the videotape of a Palestinian aid worker Carrying the body, the dead body of a holy Israeli soldier on October 7th. Carrying the body who had been gunned down in one of the kibbutzim. Okay? I don't have to name him. I don't have to give him the airspace. So don't even bother. If you hear UN think cesspool if you hear UN think filth if you hear UN turn the channel and if you hear UN protect your wallet speak up say no all right yeah no more no more Joe Biden Palestinian state they don't even want give me a second here two states not a solution as, as Douglas Murray says, it's part of the problem. All right, let's see now. Oh, Canada. Canada, we always say Canada is so nice. We have wonderful Canadians listening in. I'm sure that you Canadians who are keeping up on Jewish news are aware of a recent Women's Day event that a cyclist, a, a celebrated, award-winning, many times medaled. Writer named Leah Goldstein was kicked out. Let's call it what it was. She was removed from the event, not allowed to participate in the Women's Day cycling event because, according to the organizers, quote, there's a small but growing and extremely vocal group, unquote, that took issue with Goldstein's service 30 years ago in the Israeli army you know what? It doesn't matter what her biography is. It doesn't matter what they said. It doesn't matter the feckless, weak International Women's Day Committee in Ontario, Canada. What matters is we are being hijacked. Morality is being absolutely taken out of our hands And when we don't call it out, when we wring our hands and we say, this too will pass, you may be right, but at what price? Stand up, stand up. We were brought to this world for a reason. We were brought into existence. I hate to say, Mitaken Olam. You know, the whole tikkun Olam umbrella? It's been so overused. It's so trite. It's so embarrassing. But today, it is so real. If nothing else, share the story and say this is wrong. All right. Um, Yeah. Okay. I think I need another sip of coffee. Mhm. Oh, look at that! We have we have Ghana has joined us again. Beautiful Ghana, Accra and Ghana, and Austria is with us. So many people, so many who just want to let others know, listening in. It really is a family that we're on the same page. Our heartbeat is one. We want the same. For yes. Eretz Israel, for Am Yisrael, for our holy soldiers who are cold tonight and protecting it for all of us. And um, it's very, very nice. So this Parsha, we're going to actually start because I'm scared. Sometimes I miss stuff. And then after the show, I go, oh, no, I meant to say this. I meant to say that. So I'm already thinking about Shabbos. I have my... Turkey breast is defrosting. I've pulled out the peppers. We're going to grill some peppers. Going to strain the soup. I'm ready. I can feel the Shabbos vibe coming. So I like to do a section called From the Torah to Your Table. So it's to all of our tables. So in commenting on the opening of today's Torah portion, the Torah portion is called Tetzaveh. So... um. The uh, Tzrur Mamor maintains that, quote, Israel is likened to an olive which yields up its oil when it's crushed. For Israel reveals its true virtues only when it's made to suffer. The Jews are also likened to oil which never mixes with any other liquid but always remains on top because the Jews always remain above the other nations and never mingle with them. It's remarkable that although they have had to suffer torture and oppression, the Jews have remained on a, on a, on a high level, a level certainly higher than their oppressors, and steadfastly refused to mingle with them. For some, this may be hard to hear, but we know, that intermingling, marrying out, absorbing, what is the word? Oh, I'm losing my English. Um, Integrating into the masses is the way that Judaism disappears. So perhaps you, I know that we will be discussing this week on our Shabbos table um, the current situation and you know, how it looks and how it compares to both Israel and world Jewry. Love to know your thoughts. So the emphasis on this week's Torah portion is on the clothing of the Kohanim, the priests. I remember as a child, oh, this is so boring. (laughs) Let's, Let's get some good Old Testament sibling rivalry. What are we talking about clothing? But it's interesting. Because the priests in Israel of the family of Aharon. So we raise the issue of Jewish clothing as practiced throughout the ages. And I know that many people have said, you know, why do Hasidim dress the way they dress? Where in the Bible does it say wear black pants, sometimes rolled up and tucked into knee stockings? Where does it say that Jews wear, in the Yemenite fashion, long robes? Where does it say... Um, earlocks, peyotes, we call them at the side. Where does it say? So the vestments of the kohanim, these were all ordained and the exact description contains within it realms of spirituality and service to both God and man. It's a two-front two-front dressing. The garments that Jews have traditionally worn were always meant to reflect honor and glory on those who wore them and of course onto the entire household of Israel. In fact, according to Rabbi Wine, um, in Second Temple times when there was no longer any remaining oint, uh, you know anointment oil that could be used to inaugurate the priests, the kohanim into the service of the temple, the Talmud teaches us that putting on the vestments, the 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 clothing of the priesthood was was deemed to be sufficient to officially install them into their holy positions. So to a great extent, you know, they say clothing makes the man. So um, it's sort of understandable that Jews have always placed a great stress upon what clothing they wore and how they dressed. I must say, I must digress from my script as a Torah observant woman. Forgive me for using the term an orthodox Jew, orthodox Jewess. I know that I've always had a, a kind of sensitivity when I ride the bus in Israel, when I'm in the streets here, and I see Jewish girls dressed very provocatively, very immodestly. And there's something that is, that defies their Jewish DNA, there's something that is, you know, we every year we appear, whether we're wanted or not wanted, in the Eurovision Song Contest, and I always say it's always a celebration to Israeli immodesty. We get these girls and sometimes boys dressed up there, you know, half naked, and I'm thinking, can we be any less Jewish? Um so anyway, we've always put great stress on modesty, and of course, the type and style of Jewish clothing varied, you know, over the generations and over the locations. This is a wonderful exhibit in the Israel Museum, our national museum, on Jewish clothing. Sometimes when I bring my grandchildren to the museum, they're not really interested in the art of klimt <laughs> or, or, um, or 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 or. Jackson Pollock doesn't speak to them but when I take them to the Jewish clothing exhibit they absolutely love it. We see each each section. The Jews of Persia, the Iranian Jews and the Iraq, they did not wear Polish fur trimmed hat and the Polish Jews um, they didn't wear headscarves or turbans. The Jews of Amsterdam in the 17th and 18th century Rabbi Wine brings down they wore triangular Um, cockaded hats and the Lithuanian rabbis of the 19th century they wore tall silk top hats I know at my parents Lithuanian wedding my father and my grandfathers were all wearing top hats silk hats Um, Jewish clothing was always meant to be modest neat and clean It was an honor and glory to the wearer and indeed to Jewish society. The Talmud speaks very strongly against Torah scholars who are somehow slovenly in their appearance. Poverty in Jewish life, poverty is not an excuse for stains or dirt on one's garments. My husband, Ronnie, frequently speaks, his father was a milamed, a Jewish scholar and teacher, and they were very, very poor growing up. And crazy because he was born in the ni- early 1950s, my husband, not his father. And his father was born just really mamish, at the turn of the century, 1902, in fact. And he refused to get with the modern way. And my husband remembers his mother washing his father's collars. They were collars that attached to the shirts that he should always have a fresh collar to elevate his appearance whenever he went to learn or to teach, lest his students see him in a collar that was frayed or grayed. I just think that's such a wonderful, wonderful image. Um... So as I say, poverty was never allowed to be an excuse for stains or dirt on one's garments. And in the temple, they used the clothing of the Kohanim to actually, um, it exhibited an element of holiness to them, even if they could no longer be worn. Clothing, oh, I didn't know this. I just learned this, that wicks for the candelabras, for the menorahs, in the holy temple were fashioned from the clothing of the Kohanim. So it was never looked at as being purely inanimate object. Uh, we know that we have the laws of shotness, the war the, it's the laws of not mixing linen and flax. Well, to the naked eye, to the naked soul, aren't these indeed inanimate inanimate objects? But Judaism is a religion that doesn't let anything pass as meaningless. And if we are even sensitive to the feelings and the attributes of plants and fabric materials, how much more sensitive should we be to the feelings of our neighbors with whom we're not speaking? The above might help you. It certainly helps me explaining the importance of clothing, really kind of illuminating a sensitivity, how we should kind of act about it. And make us aware of the uniforms that Jews in the world and here in Israel wear, and the, what uniforms play in our communal and personal life. Every one of us and the groups that we belong to very funny. I remember seeing when I moved to Israel, I would see a woman in a in a modest jean skirt, low ankle socks and sneakers. Nale sport, tackies in South Africa. I knew she was American. It was her uniform. I'm sure that some of the Israelis listening in the show this morning are chuckling. Um, but the groups we belong to, we wear certain clothing and we should wear it with honor and glory. Therefore, not only treat our clothing with respect, but we should respect as well the wearers of the different types of clothing that conform to our traditions of modesty and Jewish pride. Um, looking right ahead here. Oh my gosh, we have more to cover. So the Dayan Moshe Swift in his book, Moreshet Moshe, he talks about the Megillah, Remember Megillah Esther? We're coming close to Purim. I know we're shocking. Purim, Pesach can't be far after that. But it's very important that we talk at this time. We're already in the month of Adar. And now let's talk about it for a moment and look at it through the lens of what is happening in holy Israel at this moment. Megillah, is this incredible, indeed miraculous story where God's name does not appear. And it's a story of a Jew bringing God back to a place where it had pretty much disappeared. A great revival, a return to Jewish practice, observance, a return to identification with the Jewish state. La Yehudim to the Jews there was aura, light, that is Torah, simcha, which is joy. That was the Shabbat and Yom Tov. Sason, gladness, that is Mila, Jewish sacrifice and yikar, honor, that is tefillin, Jewish majesty, the crown of God on everyone's head. This is what dictates God in everyone's heart. It's a call to every Jew not to forget his identity, not to forget his responsibilities, his obligations. That's the story of Purim. They were just about to forget when something happened, something woke them up. Feels familiar, boys and girls. The Torah tells us that the light in the sanctuary came from pure olive oil. The more an olive is beaten, the better is the oil. I don't know if this is accurate, but I've read it again and again. If you know about this, tell me that the finest pianos are made from wood that has been exposed and tested by the weather. That it's this kind of a wood that provides the the richest tones, the sweetest music, the best echoes. It's not easy to get up early in the morning to pray. It's certainly not easy to watch our mouths and guard our tongues and to have respect. To give up time from sports. To learn a little Torah. It's like beating an olive, but it produces the very best oil. There's a statement in the book of Mishlei: Ner Hashem Nishmat Adom. The candle of Hashem is the soul of man. So, what are we supposed to get from this analogy? That between the Ner Tamid, the eternal candle, and the neshama, the soul, that every detail of the nair tamid can be matched to the detail of the ideal soul. We know that the nair tamid must be fueled by olive oil in order to produce the clearest flame. The gemara brachot parallels olive oil and the light of Torah. Torah is the only fuel which fills the soul. Anything else is like diesel in a Porsche. I said that to somebody, it's like diesel in a Porsche, and they said, God forbid, God forbid. The other motivations destroy the Nishama. Oh, it can run well temporarily, but in the end, you blow the motor. The oil of that nair, of, that, of, the, of the light, must be pure, and contain no sediment. Sediment. What is sediment signal? Stagnation. Stagnation. Stagnation, real. Stagnation in the oil. Stagnation in the heart. Stagnation in one's drive. There's no such thing as a soul that can level out on a neutral plane. Every action, every inaction affects the soul status, not permitting stagnation. We know that the ramp, the ramp up to the Holy of Holies, it wasn't a stairway where you could stop and rest. It was a steep ramp because we're learning a lesson. The Kohanim who marched up the ramp. You can't stop on a ramp because if you stop, you're going to fall backwards and that's the lesson there's no such concept as a minimum fulfillment of mitzvot of the commandments but like a person trying to survive on exactly a poverty line salary or a student who aims only for a grade of 65 I'm going to hold it there the soul aiming for the minimum is more times than not going to slip underneath that line. The oil of that nair tamid has to be crushed from the olive oil and not be obtained from grinding, which produces the majority of olive juices. Similarly, although we are required to press ourselves to fulfill the commandments, there's no command to destroy ourselves in the process. Um, every Jew, every Jew has to fill the l'ha'alot ner, to try again, to light his candle. And if he doesn't succeed on the first time around, I tried, I did it once, it's not enough. That flame has to be rekindled until the fire is strong, more fuel has to be added. That final ner tamid specification is that the flame must always be lit every day. Every individual action should be pre-considered based on whether or not Hashem will accept the flame it produces. For all of us, may the merit of the millions of Nerot Tamid permanent flames bring the light of Moshiach. Shabbat Shalom or Mivorach from Jerusalem.